0: This afternoon, we will be looking at one aspect of the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. And we'll be looking specifically at the question of truth. So in connection with that, we will read from Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, the verses 1 to 16. And you can find that on page 1345 of your pew Bible. Here the apostle Paul is writing from prison And he writes, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, the Ephesians, the Ephesian church, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in a cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. The Word of God. In connection with this, we'll also be reading from the Heidelberg Catechism. As a church here in Owen Sound, we've been working our way through, for you who are visiting, we've been working our way through the Ten Commandments as we find them discussed in the Heidelberg Catechism. And today, this afternoon, we've reached Lord's Day 43, what is required in the Ninth Commandment. And you can find that on page 557 of your book of praise. What is required in the Ninth Commandment? I must not give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander Nor condemn or join in condemning anyone rashly and unheard. Rather, I must avoid all lying and deceit as the devil's own works under penalty of God's heavy wrath. In court and everywhere else, I must love the truth, speak and confess it honestly, and do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. So far. beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, was there ever a time when the question, what is truth, would have had a straight answer? There was an age and days gone by in which the world was much more black and white, where shades of gray were limited, where people could see where they stood and weren't as afraid to express it, where one's position could be politely disagreed with, But people could still maintain a certain level of friendship with people who are on the opposite side of the spectrum. But there could also be a coldness in that age. There could be immobility. People could be lost between the cracks. Many people of today's age talk about how that time that's been passed now was one composed of a lot less love. Today, that age is gone. Today, we live in an age that embraces all. It's an age where love is the watchword, and it's paired closely with tolerance. It's an age in which there are endless shades of gray, and everything has to be seen from someone else's perspective to matter. Black can be white if seen from the right perspective, and white can be black. In fact, people are so tied up with seeing everything from so many perspectives that sometimes they're ground to a halt and unable to move, unable to cast judgments because nothing anymore is right or wrong. It just is, depending on your perspective and depending on your level of contentment where you're at. Is it wrong to be a cannibal? Not if you live in a society where that's the norm, it just is. Why cast judgment on them? Of course, you educate them so they understand, but it's not wrong from their society's perspective. Is it wrong to live with someone outside of marriage? Not if that's what makes you happy. It's a peculiar time we live in, this postmodern age. Everything is considered relative. Blame is never assigned a true resting place. And yet, finding out who to truly blame is always the focus. And if only there's enough love, whatever that actually means, we're not sure in this age. Love will fix it all. The words of Paul, which we find here in Ephesians 4, are spoken to a world in which which in many ways is vastly different from our own. And yet these words, we find, speak to us today too. They are true for us today because they speak to timeless issues. They speak to the questions of sin. They speak to the questions of truth. The issue of what truth is, how to find it, and how to deal with it once you've received it. So today, we'll be considering that foundational aspect of truth, of of the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And today, we'll be looking at that under that one verse of Paul's, speaking the truth in love. And we'll see that, first of all, speaking the truth comes from love, and second, we speak the truth out of love. This past week, a group of leaders, evangelical leaders, released what's being called the Nashville Statement. It's a document put out by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. This is a document that outlines the biblical view of marriage. It's a position that's been held by the church for about 2,000 years. And yet, somehow, putting your name to that document today is a source of outrage. There has been a hue and a cry. People have been saying, how could you sign something like that? Promoting the biblical view of marriage is seen as outdated, evil, and loveless. Why? Because our culture has come to believe, our culture here in Canada has come to believe that what God says about morality, sexuality, and mankind in general is not the ultimate truth. Because there is no ultimate truth at all. And while we don't embrace it in the same way, the effects of it are still felt somewhat here at home. As the saying goes, when it rains in the world, it drips in the church. We find our attitudes shifting. We find our attitudes towards the question of truth shifting. In light of that, let's pay attention to the words of Jesus for a moment. You can find them in John 17, verse 16 and following. He says, they are not of the world, speaking about his disciples in his prayer to God. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Be sanctified, be made holy by the truth, be set apart by the truth. These words of our Lord are words that recognize the reality of an absolute truth. There is no partial truth, no truth that's true for you, but not true for my system of belief. When you say something and hear the response, well, that's just your truth. Don't accept that. Because truth is God's truth. And that's something that's important to remember. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought for a moment as we move ahead. Truth is God's truth. It's not your truth. It's not my truth. It's God's truth. There is an ultimate truth in this world and God himself and his word is the ultimate measure of that truth. Now keeping that in mind, consider for a moment how we in our day-to-day interactions handle the truth. Let's say you have a friend who is living in sin and who's headed for trouble because of the way that they live. They've acted in a way that's sinful or maybe they are acting in a way that's sinful you need to call them out on something but you hesitate why do you hesitate? why do I hesitate? what is in our hearts that causes us to keep from speaking the truth? there's a few reasons for this the first is simply fear it's a natural human question of what will they think of me? If I speak up, they'll probably take it the wrong way. Isn't it just better for me to be there for them? The second reason is reflective of a certain level of apathy, not really caring as much about the issue. They still love the Lord, right? Isn't that what matters at the end of the day? Why should I get involved? I'm exposing myself to potential pain to no benefit. I don't care enough about the outcome of this to say anything. The third is a misunderstanding of love. That person is happy, isn't he? That person is content, isn't she? Why should I say anything? It would be unloving to mess with their contentment. A fourth reason can be because they sinned against us personally. We resent them for breaking down our relationship, and it's easier simply not to talk to them. And another reason is that we hope other people will take care of it. So we talk behind that person's back, we talk about that person to other people. And as we talk, or perhaps as we mull it over in our own heads, the story stretches and grows and the wrongs done against us by a wife, friend, coworker, boss, or someone else takes a bigger and bigger place in our minds. The responsibility we bear takes a smaller and smaller place. We're only willing to accept one side of the story, and it becomes gossip, it becomes slander, it grows into bearing false witness. Now, what all of these reasons have in common is that they're not speaking the truth to that person for reasons that may seem better to us or may seem worse, we're hiding, choosing to hide the truth from that person or those individuals. Now, recognizing that it's the truth that's so important, that there is an ultimate standard out there, that there is something that God holds as a standard and that we must recognize as a standard We need to reflect on that when we deal with other people. Whatever our reason is for stepping back from that, it's a reflection on our view of the truth. We value the truth less. We recognize it less for what it is. We take a step back from it. And it's something that is to our own benefit, or we feel is to our own benefit. In connection with the love question, some people say it's not more loving to... It's... Pardon me. In connection with the love question, when people say it's more loving not to say anything, we need to reflect on that in light of the truth, in light of that ultimate rule, Because then we recognize that it's not more loving to say nothing, even if that person is more content. Why? Well, let's take a look at what the Bible says for a moment. John 14, verse 15 is a pretty famous passage with regards to love, and it's been mentioned a few times in previous Sundays. Kids, you maybe remember this. If you love me, how does it end? If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, this is where the question of truth comes back. Remember that I asked you to hold on to that idea that God is a God of absolute truth and where that He's where truth comes from. That with God there are absolute rights and absolute wrongs. When He commands, it's not something for us to be taken, for us to take lightly. Love is not a question of stepping back from people. Love is not a question of letting people go their own way. When we look at love, we have to look at it in relation to obedience to Jesus Christ. Our love results in an obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience is an expression of our thankfulness to Him. If we truly do love Him, we'll want to obey Him. For example, husbands, your wife notices after you leave a dish in the sink for the umpteenth time instead of putting it in the dishwasher, and she mentions it to you. It kind of leaves the house messier than it needs to be, and it's unpleasant. So she asks if you could take the extra moment to put it in the dishwasher. What do you do over the next few days while that reminder is still fresh in your memory? You put the dish in the dishwasher, right? You obey your wife's request. No, in this case, it's a request and not a command, but the principle still applies. While you think about it, you obey your wife's request and you put your used dishes in the dishwasher. Why? Because you love your wife and you want her to be happy. It's a very basic idea, but the principle is still the same, right? You love, so you act in accordance with what the other person wishes or wills. Now, when somebody has heard that from their wife, someone you care about has heard that from their wife, and you're close to them, and you see them stick it in, a dish, or stick it in the sink again, then you'd speak out, right? You'd say, well, maybe you'd speak out. You'd say, your, your wife uh, isn't particularly happy when doing that, when you do that. And then there would, that would be an action of love. You want that relationship to be maintained. When someone sins or is living in sin, they aren't loving Jesus as they should. And that leads to dangerous ground. If you know that in a human relationship, something that distresses someone is going on and you let it keep happening, that leads to tension and it if it continues to build up, it can lead to a breakdown in the relationship. It's a similar idea here. The person may say they love Jesus, but if they are living in a way that's sinful, whether they're aware of it or not, that grieves God. That person is putting a stumbling block in their own lives and in their own walk with God. Is it loving then to allow them to continue in sin? No, because we know that's harmful to them and to their walk with God. And so we're called to speak the truth to them. We're called to bring them back to that absolute truth. To guide them back to that absolute standard. To have them reflect on that once again. As we read in James 5 verse 19 to 20, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know That he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We are called to speak the truth about this stumbling block. We are to speak the truth, not to others, but to them, to that individual, about their walk with God. As Jesus says in Matthew 18, we're called to do that first by ourselves, then with a brother, and finally with the church as a body. Because we're seeking to bring them back to that precious truth, the truth of God. So, what is the goal of speaking that truth to someone? We read in James 5 that it's to save a soul from death, but And that's fine, but what does that mean? What does that actually look like? What's your goal with regards to that? I was speaking with someone this past week, and they said it well. The goal of speaking the truth to someone in this way is a restored relationship. A restored relationship between them and God first and foremost, and then a restored relationship between them and the person affected. The goal of speaking the truth is to restore relationships. The goal of speaking the truth is to bring them home. And that's what Christ himself did. That's what, why Christ himself came into the world too, isn't it? Listen to what he said in John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ came not only to speak the truth, but he came as the truth. His very existence was a conviction of the world. His presence in the flesh was a declaration that man had fallen, that man had broken the relationship between himself and God, and that man was incapable of restoring it himself. In today's society, we would say, why would you remind people of that fact? It's not loving. They're content where they're at. Why would you come bearing the truth in this way? It's not an easy reality to swallow because it condemns us. Christ, the Word, coming in the flesh, condemns us. Christ came to earth as true man so that he could fulfill the requirement that the same human nature that sinned should pay for sin. But he came as God because man himself was incapable of saving himself. Christ's words, his sermons, his very presence spoke to man, telling him that he had fallen short of the mark, that of himself it was impossible for him to be saved. But that truth that condemns us sets us free as well. funny how that works, isn't it? The very truth that condemns us sets us free as well. We don't like to see the ugly nature of our own sin. When we're confronted ourselves by our sin, when someone brings the truth to us, we'd rather downplay it. We'd rather not know it. We'd rather that other people don't see it in our lives. Paul Tripp says it well. It's tempting to harden your heart against the ministry conviction of the Holy Spirit by arguing for your righteousness when a sin, weakness, or failure is revealed. It's tempting to refuse to listen to the convicting voice of the Spirit by comparing yourself to other believers and arguing that you are surely more righteous than they. It's tempting to resist the Spirit's loving work of conviction when He uses an instrument who you think is more unqualified and less mature than you. But it's when we're confronted with something that we can't overcome by ourselves that we're forced to direct our eyes elsewhere. We're forced to direct our eyes to the one who can help. By being confronted by our own inability to be made right with God in our own power, we're forced to look beyond that. By being confronted with our sin, We're forced to look beyond. And this is where the truth gets good. This is where the news gets good. Because Jesus doesn't just speak the truth. He is the truth. Because in Jesus we not only find the truth about who we are in our natural state. In him we also find the way by which we can be saved from this natural state. In his speaking the truth in love, he not only convicts the world, but he shows the way to redemption and the way that he directs them to. That way, the way of life is himself. This knowledge removes all avenue of boasting on our part. It removes all avenue of judging on our part. There's really nothing left for us to do but to direct our hearts and minds to Jesus Christ, to rely on him for everything that we need, and to live our lives in thankfulness coming out of that. And that thankfulness informs the way that we speak to others as well. When we talk to other people about their sins, how do we approach them? Do we come in a manner that's judging and condemning? Because it's all very well and good to take a newfound boldness for the truth, to use this truth that we discover in the Bible and the courage that the truth brings out, and to, right from the get go, come down on someone like a ton of bricks. But does that help? Straightforward talk and discipline is sometimes necessary. When it comes to it, you parents know that. You read Proverbs 13, verse 24, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Now chances are you don't use the rod, but the principle of discipline still applies. Discipline is sometimes necessary when you're guiding your child in the truth. But it's a discipline that comes out of love, not a discipline that comes out of anger. It's the discipline that comes out of wanting to direct them in the truth, turning their eyes back to the truth, not a discipline that comes from saying, I am better than you. And so we, when we judge, we are not judging them according to our own personal principles, according to our own personal goodness. But we are guiding people back to the truth. We read in Hebrews 12, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Now you kids might be wondering, what's chastening? You may have seen it in your uh, bulletin there. As one of the words to look for. It's disciplining or correcting. So my son, don't despise the correcting of the Lord. Don't be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Now, no chastening seems to be joyful at the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When God deals with his children, in confronting them with sin and disciplining them, it comes out of love when we as instruments in this work of God are speaking to one another, speaking to our children, to our friends, to our family, to, our, uh, to those around, fellow congregation members, then we ought to remember that, that we speak the truth in love. The Catechism speaks in a very wise way. It says, I must do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. Now, of course, this is primarily speaking about building up our neighbor, not puffing him up, but defending his honor and reputation when others seek to attack it. But it also applies to when we talk to our neighbor regarding their sin. We are doing this for the benefit of our neighbor. By our actions, we're seeking to defend and promote their well-being. As that's the case, that should also inform the way that we talk to them. Not gossiping or slandering, not condemning or joining condemning anyone rashly and unheard, not bearing false witness. We make it clear to them that we're approaching them out of concern, out of love, and that even though we disagree with them, we can still love them. It also means that we care for them as a whole person. We read in Galatians, the first two verses of, I didn't write the chapter down. We we read in Galatians, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a person in spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. When we approach them in love on that one issue, it's not the only issue that we approach those who are around us about. Our love to them extends beyond one area of their lives. It encompasses it all. Do you have someone that you feel awkward about because there's something glaring that's already been addressed and you don't know what else to say? Ask them about their whole lives bear one another's burdens, and build each other up. We don't speak with other people because we know we're better than them, but because we know that the very same thing was done for us. This same truth was applied to our lives first and foremost. As Isaiah said, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. For that's the truth that's at the center of it all. This truth is why we have the courage to bring correction to the lives of those around us. It's what drives us to bring it to them in love. Because there was chastisement that we deserved and yet someone else took it upon himself and that someone else was Jesus Christ. This truth lets us revel in the love that, has revealed to, that was revealed to us and it lets us pour that out to those who are around. So let's hold fast to it for this truth is absolute. This truth is God's truth. And by grace, this truth is what brings us home. Amen.